Monday and welcome back to another exciting week of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over uh, probably one of the best uh, space history movies ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry from the EAA Aviation Museum. And Jim, as I always say, and, and I'm sure everybody <laughs> that tunes in knows, I, I love your company, but I always love the episodes where we have a guest. And oh, yeah. We've been promising some cool guests, and we certainly have one today. Uh, someone who I'm, I'm very fortunate to call a, a, not only a, a cohort DA, but also my friend. Uh, former NASA lead flight director Paul Dye is here, or Iron Flight, uh, if you will. Uh, Paul, thank you for joining us today. You bet. Thanks for having me here. Uh, this and this is a this is a tough week, Chris, because I know that uh, as we're recording this, this is normally when Air Venture is happening. So you and uh, Paul would be meeting face to face. We would be, yeah, we'd yeah. be hanging out. Yeah. We'd be we'd be exhausted by right now. I think <laughs> pretty so. much, pretty much. I'd be looking for weather for my flight back to Nevada. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Wow. Well, uh, uh, Paul, you've you've been part of uh, of NASA since uh, since well the very beginning of the shuttle era, and uh, you're kind of in the crossover stage. You you were there when uh, some Apollo people were still around, so uh, you've seen the gamut of of all the changes in the post lunar era, and, yeah. and helped to create many of those uh, those changes. Yeah, I was um, really really fortunate to to get there when we still had all the Apollo veterans there, and they were the ones that trained me. Uh, to be it, to, in the NASA way of how to be a flight controller, how to be, a, and eventually how to be a flight director. So I was really, really fortunate to to, to learn those lessons from the guys that uh, that did the moon flights. I, I have to ask what the what the first day at NASA was like for you. I mean, you weren't a, you weren't a flight director, but this is you know you walk in the door, you finish filling out all the forms, and and here you go. Well, the first day you you don't even finish filling out all the forms, you know. But but by the second day, they actually take you out to where you're going to work. And and I was a I joined as a co-op student, so you know you send in an application, and they you got a letter back that said uh, we've checked you out, we want to have you, we've done your security clearance, uh, re- report on such and such a date, and they don't tell you what you're going to do. You have no cl- no earthly clue. And uh, so the when you're all done with all the the in processing, they uh, they walk you out to to your section, and they took me out to this building uh, across the duck ponds. It was Building Four, and and I had no idea at the time that Building Four was uh, where the astronauts lived on the third floor. And they took me up to the third floor and to to the opposite corner from the astronaut office, and and introduced me to my section head, and uh, and he said we're we, we really need some help. We need to we need uh, need to do a bunch of uh, systems level drawings of the system we're going to be putting on the payload in the payload bay called Space Lab. And uh, then you're going to be a flight controller. So how does that sound? <laughs> and it was like, wow, <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Now, now you, you, your background. I mean, you, you know, there you were new to, uh, you were new to NASA. You still had a, a rather large background in commercial aviation, right? That was that was where I, you began. I, I'm a I'm a general aviation guy and a flight test guy. My my degree, which I was still working on at the time, is uh, a bachelor's in aeronautical engineering, and I specialized in. Uh, in uh, aircraft design and flight testing. So I was a silk scarf, uh, leather helmet, goggles kind of guy. And they said, perfect, you're just what we need. Uh, please do this drawing on this accelerometer package. And I, and I was like, really? <laughs> I, I did have basic electric electronics and Boy Scouts, but 
but uh, this is going to be a challenge. And uh, sure enough, uh, they just uh, front-end loaded me learning uh, digital electronics, and uh, and that's where I learned that. And then the next thing was was uh, was computers and um, and uh, then uh, space pointing systems. And, and and there's method behind that madness. the The idea is that there is no such thing anymore about a pure mechanical system or a pure electrical system. Everything has software. Everything has electronics. You you need to be multidisciplinary. So. Well, I, I didn't really get to use a lot of my aeronautical stuff until a few years later um, uh, when I did, and, it, and I was just in hog heaven. Um, I really became multidisciplinary in those first few years. Wow. And it, that is part of the NASA way that you, like any, any flight director, by the time they get to be a flight director, you've run, you've run the gamut of, of all the different systems and, and understand what it's like sitting in each of those other chairs before you well, get to the, the back row. The, the truth is you actually, the average flight director candidate really comes up out of one discipline. But, um, and I was fortunate because I was, in the early days, I was in the payload computer section. I worked the, the space lab computers and I worked the, the uh, instrument pointing system, which was a big deal back in the early part of the program. And, and that gave me the, to learn how to, how to work with the payloads, with the customers, and then how to interface that to the orbiter systems. And then I moved to the mechanical system sections where we did all sorts of different systems on the orbiter. But, but there were a lot of people who were just a propulsion officer or a guidance navigation and control officer until they, they were selected as a flight director. Um, and they did just fabulous as well. I always felt that it was an advantage for me to have done several different disciplines. Once you're selected as a flight director, then we go into intense training for all the different disciplines. And uh, it's, the, it's six months of, of academics that are that is nonstop. It's you know 12, 16 hours a day, and you're just studying and being lectured to, and and that's when you really learn all the other systems uh, down to their down to their component nuts and bolts and bits. Do you remember your first day in the front room? I mean, I don't mean as a as a flight director, but when you got to sit at a console up oh, front. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my first mission was uh, Space Lab Two. Well, I was a co-op student at STS One, so we were running around as you know coffee getters and. And running around with charts and things like that, uh, but uh, but after my first mission in the back room, I was ready to do another mission in the back room, and and I got called into the office and said, well, we can't use you in the back room anymore. And I said, oh, that's, what what am I going to do now? And they said, no, we need you in the front room on your next flight. And it was like, holy smokes, um, how much time do I have to train? They said, well, start reading because. <laughs> Because you need to be in a you need to be in a simulation tomorrow morning, <laughs> oh, wow. and uh, I had spent a lot of time. the The folks who end up like flight directors are the ones who who spend a lot of extra time studying everybody else's system on the side. You know, you you stay you stay late at night and you learn all the interfaces and you go beyond what you're just expected to do. And so I had a pretty good idea what what I needed to do and. And you get in there and you just kind of hope that the sim guys are kind to you, that first system or that first sim, and they, that they give you things that are that you know, you know, and that you, they, they don't give you a really far out case. And they do. There's no reason to crush somebody on their first day. You know, they'll <laughs> go screaming into the night and never come back. Uh, it, mu- it must have been something though that when when you got told you're going to the front room, I'm just picturing you driving home, looking at the looking at the windshield of your car, going, "Really? Is this really happening?" <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it, it's kind of like that, you know. And uh, and uh, and you go, "Oh, doggone it! I wonder if I have a tie." You know, <laughs> it, we were a little more casual in the back room. We wore open collared shirts, not not 
in the back days, it was still a button-down shirt. You just, you know, you gave the illusion that you might have been able to put a tie on in the back room. <laughs> but in the front room, ties were ties were not optional. So, yeah, uh, yeah it was kind of like, yeah, I think I have one or two ties. And and uh, <laughs> my, my my the blue sport coat that I bought for $49 at Sears when I when I thought I was, you know, when I heard I was going to NASA. Uh, so wow. so I got to ask you, Paul, what what's that? What's that like? That first day walking into Mission Control, knowing that this is where you're gonna, this is where you're gonna write out a mission. This is where you're gonna work. I mean, that that's got to be a pretty awe-inspiring uh, moment. Well, there's probably two points in time that you're thinking of. The first is when you show up um, for your first training, and you know the pressure, and it's 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 rehearsal, right? So you you don't want to screw up. You don't want to screw up in front of your peers. You want them to trust you because trust is absolutely essential. Uh, if you can't trust somebody else, then then it's a non-starter. And so you want to make sure that they can rely on you and that you don't let them down and that you've got all of the stuff crammed in your head and in your goodie book. You know, you, we all build cheat sheet goodie books to, to condense the information. That it's kind of like, you know, practicing for an exam and having everything written on the inside of your arm. That's a goodie book kind of thing. <laughs> and then... And then when you actually show up for your first shift on your first mission in the front room, um, it's it, it, there's this sense of calm that comes over you because you, you come in and it's quiet and you sit down and you get ready for handover. You plug in, you get into the rhythm of what's going on and you do your first handover and, and you very quickly get immersed in what you've been trained to do. So uh, you don't have much time to just think and soak it in. You just get right in the groove and then about halfway through the shift you go, I can't believe where I am. This is really cool. <laughs> wow! Uh, and this this was in the days before selfies too. So <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, we didn't we didn't do things like that. Pat Pat Patneski was the the, the one of the, the the old time photographers at uh, Johnson Space Center, and Pat was a fixture in the control room during a mission, and he'd wander around and start taking pictures of people. So it was always great to have a Patneski picture because because he just did beautiful shots of people if you see really great pictures matter of fact i just saw a picture uh that i've seen many many times if somebody put it on a, on facebook the other day uh wayne hale did of um of bob gilruth george lowe and uh, chris Kraft all sitting in the back row of mission control during some moment that was that was important and they all have these this interesting very concentrated look on their face and and uh, that's a Patneski photo, I'm pretty sure. But but I couldn't help but look at it and figure out what they were trying to, th what they were all thinking. And my first thought was they were all sitting there looking at the flight director console, going, "What did Kranz just say?" It was the first caption that came to my mind. <laughs> uh, wow. Well, um, the uh, I, I know that every. Every part of a mission is vital, but uh, this minute that we're in right now is discussing the beginning of reentry, and I can imagine that that may be the most tense moments in mission control is just trying to finish out the mission because you know if they get through this last little bit and touching down, that's you know then mission accomplished. Right. Uh, and you've you've sat through I don't know how many uh, reentries where you work and shift on, on those both in the, as a flight controller and as a flight director, but it must yeah. be pretty hair-raising i would think well we have a saying that if you're given to reacting to stress you're probably in the wrong place if you're a flight director and so we we 
we train reactions like stress or fear or um, or like out of our people if, if they have any of it. Uh, you just don't last if you're going to react negatively to that. So what you what you become is somebody who can t deal with almost anything that happens in a very unemotional way. We kind of get rid of the emotions. We're very Vulcan-like in that respect. Um, you, you know that there are thousands of details going on and you're trying to keep them all in your head. And you there, there's a certain level of almost you hear guys talk about in combat that they were that they were too busy to be scared, um, and and the same thing's kind of true. Uh, that the minute in this film that and, and I, by the way I gotta say I, I agree that Apollo 13 the best film that was ever made about how things actually work in the control center is just fabulous, um, and and this minute where you're all kind of taking your breath and realizing there really isn't anything you can do, physics is in charge. The systems are set up, and let's see where it comes out at the other end. Yeah, uh, in this particular minute, as as the uh, you know the, the heat shield starts, the the atmosphere starts to ionize around the ship, and we go into uh, you know the loss of signal uh, going on. This uh, kind of went away for the shuttle because of uh, Tedris. You could you could talk upwards and then relay it back down. But you you were there during the early days when the Tedris network wasn't established. So that must right. have been. I would think you know even though you, like you say you control your your worries and concerns, but that that LOS time must have been a little bit. Um, it's uh, stressful in a, in a sense that you you have to you know you're sitting there knowing going through everything that's going to happen afterwards. The one thing that that Apollo had is. After blackout and they made radio contact, there was nothing for the control center to do. The parachutes were on automatic sequences. The crew was riding along. There was, you were done, right? You were done except yeah. watching the thing on the TV on the TV screen. In the shuttle, it was after blackout that things got really busy because there were so many systems to watch. There was so much guidance to be watching. There were, uh, you know, that you're you're watching to make sure that they get to the have that the that the energy state is always positive um and uh that it's a very it was a very very busy time so you kind of use that period like like a musician who's got a passage of the you know you're in a big orchestra and and you're the you're the tuba player and, and there's no tuba for about 60 bars <laughs> and and the, and you're just getting ready for your entry right you're getting ready for your big coming back in with that big big note you got to do and and that was kind of like what the what the uh, the blackout period was in the shuttle because as soon as you were going to get AOS there was all sorts of stuff going on that you had to had to watch verify and make uh, make uh, calls on yeah the, I mean, those you know trying to shed all that energy coming back from an orbital velocity must have been uh, a lot of intense work once once you get back back together and uh, I that always floored me about how how it all worked in coordination with the ground and, and yeah. things, things going on there. You know, the, the amount of energy that you put in to accelerate a 240,000-pound vehicle to 25,000 feet per second or 18,000 miles an hour, you got to take all that energy back out to get it down to the ground. I mean, that's just simple energy balance. And so the, it it's just... It's just an amazing thing that that the tile system on the orbiter was intact when you got back down, and you said, "Where'd all the where'd all the heat and energy go?" You know, it went into drag, which went into heat, but it went into ionizing the atmosphere rather than melting the vehicle. Yeah, the I, you know I keep thinking about the scale of things. I, admittedly, they're coming in twenty five thousand miles an hour. They're coming in a lot faster velocity, but it's pretty much a ballistic arc that 
yeah, they're they're coming down. They can control where, roughly where they're going to land. But with the shuttle, you had you had a ship that was the size of a DC nine, right? And you had to control it to land at a specific spot on tarmac. Um, I did you sleep in the off hours during uh, during a, during a mission because I can't imagine sleeping knowing I have to go into work the next day. Just... Oh yeah, yeah. You know, you get used to it. But um, the 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 wonderful thing about the the shuttle was you had wings. You know, these really cool things called wings, which generate lift, and that it, it's all about point. What we say is pointing your lift vector. You know, a fighter pilot will talk about maneuvering his lift vector nowadays. And uh, where you point that lift that you generate by giving yourself some angle of attack is how you guide the vehicle. And so from when you did a deorbit burn, and if you did absolutely nothing except hold a straight angle of attack, pointed down range, you would land at a point. I mean, that's just physics. But by banking the airplane one way or the other, you could actually go up to 750 miles on either side of that point, and you could you could create enough drag to land 500 feet short of that point or 1,000 miles downrange of that point. So that opened up this big ellipse of where your landing zone was. And the key was that you want to arrive over your landing area with enough energy that you can redesignate runways and the like. You're, you're a glider. So, you know, the, the simplest way to explain it, if you're overhead a runway in a glider, generally if you're directly overhead, all things being equal, you can land in either direction on that runway so that you've got two runways available. And you, you maintain enough positive energy to make those decisions and, and go where you need to go. So the, the addition of wings gave us that, that functionality that we could actually guide the vehicle to a wider array of, a wider array of, of landing spots. I have to ask about the first shuttle. You, you were there for STS-1 yep. um, right at the beginning of your career. And... Uh, that, that whole mission, it, it had been the first time anything had ever been tried. I mean, this was strap everything together, put people on right. board, and shoot it into space. Um, what did it feel like uh, April 12th, that, that launch day, that, that first time? Um, you know, it, it's hard to even explain it, the, the feeling. It's just like you're watching it all. You've, you've read you know, As a co-op, I didn't have any real responsibilities. And so I had the chance to... I had collected all the flight data file. I I learned all the procedures, uh, even though I had no job function to do that. I just was fascinated by it, and so you were just following through step by step. And and even then, I was learning how to be a flight controller and effectively learning to eventually how to be a flight director, uh, because I just followed everything that I could. Um, and again, everything's happening so fast. You're just trying to keep keep absorbing you're just absorbing and uh and that just keeps your mind busy when you moved from uh you moved into flight control flight control and working in the front uh room when was your first inkling of becoming a flight director that someone had talked to you about this how, how did that come about um you know i learned later on far later on after i was in the flight director office that there is an unofficial list if you will of people who are being watched for flight director and um i was told by some people later far later on that 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 i was noticed very early on in my front room career let's just put it that way (laughs) i don't want to you know i don't want to tell too many tales out of school but um yeah there, there was 
there there were there were people watching me before I knew they were watching me. Hmm. Wow. Uh, and this I, w- I would imagine that this this was all going on. Uh, we're, we're going into the early nineties, I'd say, like ninety one or ninety two, that they'd be talking about this thing. And this kind of overlaps with a major part of your career, which was. Uh, as the shuttle moved from being, uh, uh, you know, uh, an American space truck to an international uh, visitor to uh, uh, to Soviet uh, technology yeah. and then eventually a, a combined technology, so I would think that that your role in making that happen probably helped in in being it, a part it, of that. It did. Um, when I was, uh, it was right at right about after the first the return to flight uh, after Columbia or after Challenger. Uh, I was the lead ascent entry flight director for my discipline for the mechanical arm and crew systems section, maintenance mechanical arm and crew system section. And um, uh, a flight director selection came along, and uh, I was encouraged to apply for it, even though I was I was a GS-13 and applications were GS, or I guess I was a 12, I wasn't even a 13. And uh, and uh, I was way not way unqualified from on paper. But I was encouraged by some senior people to apply, so I applied, and then I was shocked to get an interview. And and when I got the interview, I think it was pretty clear to myself and the chief of the office who was doing the interview, Larry Bourgeois, that that it was this was a a chance to expose me to the process. That no, you're you're not going to get the job this time, but you, but let's talk about it. And and so that was a very great learning experience, and that's when I kind of realized that I'd been. I, I was being watched. Well, I knew before that I was being watched, but it was that was the real clear inkling that I was. And then the se- uh, about two years later, there was another selection, and I was a new section head. I'd been made the section head of the group, and um, I was more competitive to the point where uh, when I didn't get it, they asked. I said, "Well, what should I do differently next time?" And they said, "Don't change a thing. It just wasn't your turn." And then. Um, we, I was asked to uh, by uh, one of the flight directors um, if I would be interested in learning something about Russian space systems. And I said, sure, that looks neat. I've got my section running pretty good, and I'm looking for something interesting to work on. And so I started digging into what we, could, what we knew about Russian space systems from our tech library and some various contacts. And I was then told, um, make sure your passport's up to date because we're going to Moscow. And so there were six of us that went from the operations group that went over to Moscow on a trip that that was set up to essentially answer the question for the administrator who'd been asked the question from the White House, what can we do with the Russians in space? And the idea was to keep the Russians, this is now the Russians, not the Soviet Union, because the Russians, the Soviet Union had just broken up within the previous year. And we wanted to keep the Russians the Russian space people working on peaceful space projects rather than being asked by the highest bidder to go work to work for them. Um, and we're talking countries that wanted nuclear tipped ballistic missiles, missiles that, that were not friendly to us. Sure. So it was to our advantage to keep these folks working on peaceful projects. So we went over there and we sat down with our Russian counterparts and, and it was one of these, well, we're supposed to figure out what we can do together in space. And, um, you know, you you Americans have have a space shuttle and no space station, and we have a space station and no space shuttle. So how about we come up with a way to bring your space shuttle up to our space station? I mean, it was like a Reese's peanut butter cup commercial <laughs> kind of, and uh, and that's where we that's where where it came from. And so for the next oh year or two, 
year. So I was deeply involved in the process that was going on between headquarters and Johnson Space Center and Moscow to come up with this plan. And we learned to work with each other. We had lots of meetings face-to-face in Moscow and in Houston. We did a lot of travel. We did multi-times a week. We had telecons that started at our time in Houston at 4 a.m. So that it was, you know, we were both had equal pain in terms of <laughs> time of day. <laughs> uh, and, um, and the Russians got to know me. And that was very valuable because they really, really work uh, culturally at the individual relationship level. Um, they don't just want to work with who hap- whoever happens to be in a job at the time. They want to work with Paul because they got to know Paul and they had dinner with Paul and they drank with Paul. And so that that personal contact was important. And that really set me up so that as we moved into the um, the shuttle mirror era, it was pretty clear that that uh, that was going to put me in a flight director role. And uh, when that selection came along in 1993, um, I was uh, I was pretty confident that that I was going to get it and I did so that's kind of kind of the the short way of how the Russians got me in, into the flight director chair was it a bit of a what is it a bit of a surprise to find out that the spectrum module had already had a, a mostly compatible uh docking system I mean thanks to Apollo Soyuz how, how did that well that's when I first started looking into the Russian space systems before I made that first Moscow trip I I kind of learned about their system and the APDS, and um, and so that that was not a terribly big surprise because I've always been a student of history. I mean, I could tell you every detail about uh, about how Mercury worked and how Gemini worked, even though it wasn't part of my job. It was fascinating, and how that stuff led to what we had, and and then how Apollo stuff worked. And so I knew about Apollo Soyuz pretty well. I was a school kid when that stuff when that happened, and I dug into it. Um, my, my father was the state mathematics coordinator for the Minnesota State Department of Education, and he was on the NASA's mailing list. And every oh. single piece of pamphlet, brochure, anything that came out, he got a copy of it and immediately went into my file drawer. So um, I, I had all that information. So I was not surprised by the APDS. Um, it was like, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard of that before. Wow. Um, it, if um, uh, Now, as, as you headed in, to your career as uh, as flight director, uh, did you have a particular mentor who was a flight director already? I mean, where what path did you follow on that? Oh I'm, yeah, I, I'm yeah. assuming there's a lot of hands-on, um, you know, direct, like apprenticeship mentor relationships. Well, my you, you get into the office and there's usually ten to twelve flight directors in the office at any one time. In the old days, um, what we increased that number to about twenty to twenty-four once the space station came along because it just it takes flight directors 24-7, 365 to fly the space station, so we need more people. But at the time I came in, we had about 10 to 12 flight directors. Um, and that's what it takes to cover continuous missions. Uh, you know, you're always planning, training, flying. And we were encouraged to pick somebody in the office that was experienced in the office to kind of be our consigliere, you know, come our, kind of our, yeah. our mentor. And uh, Milt Heflin was my, uh, was my yeah. role model. I, I really always enjoyed working with Milt. I liked his style. I liked um, the way he had a kind of a laid-back approach to dealing with people, and uh, and so that 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 was Milt. Um, and uh, and uh, I still have a good relationship with him today. Uh, a question I've always I've always wondered about uh, flight direction as 
anybody who's a student of space history knows the uh, the handoff from launch control to uh, mission control happens when uh, the tower is cleared by the spacecraft uh, is as you're as you're waiting for those like first 13 seconds is that is that the high point of your tension or are you already so into it that you don't notice that oh yeah the well, started on the... well I'll tell you a secret because that that's exactly that was exactly the case. What you said is exactly right in the early in, in Apollo through Apollo and the early part of the shuttle program. But it was not very long into the shuttle program when we changed that handover from tower clear to the moment of liftoff. And that's basically because when when the when the, when the vehicle lifted off, KSC didn't have the hardline telemetry anymore. So there was a period of a few seconds where you had no data. Wow. Where they had no data, and we had the data. And we always joke that, you know, if there's much of a crosswind and that thing drifts into the tower, it's going to be really, really ugly. And since there was absolutely nothing the Cape could do about it, they didn't want to be responsible for it at that time. So <laughs> might as well throw it to Houston and make us the, the yeah. bad guys if that happens. Um, but uh, the the shuttle got up and away so fast that tower clear was was in seconds. I mean, it was really fast. And so it made more sense for us to take control at zero when all of the the computer mo modes changed. And it was a much cleaner, it was a much cleaner uh, uh, handover time. Uh, as as you worked on the loop in, uh, you know, in the in the front room and you're talking with all the controllers, I I've listened to. Uh, you know a lot of a lot of audio recordings from the Apollo era, from the uh, mm -hmm. from the shuttle era, and uh, God love you, I can't <laughs> I can't follow everything that's going on. But uh, there must be some time that you just get in the zone and you can hear everything going on at once, or there's some kind of a cocktail party effect. How do you, how do you manage the voices in your head while you're while you're going through, the, especially in the launch part where you're, you're getting a lot of feedback? I've never heard of it referred to as the voices in your head before, but I like that. I'm going to use that in the future if you don't mind. Um, we did have guys who we figured had voices to, you know, but, um, <laughs> it is a skill that you learn to, to actually listen to multiple conversations at once and understand them. And it is kind of like a cocktail. It is, you can go to a co I can go to a cocktail party and I can, and I can understand three conversations at the same time. Um, it, you, I, I don't know how it works. I honestly don't. I think as an engineer, I, I like to think that I have a little multiplexer in my brain that's just sampling <laughs> a millisecond of this one, a millisecond of this one, a millisecond of this one, and it buffers all that stuff into little digital memory, and, and it just keeps building the stuff so I can then go back and retrieve that and figure, oh, yeah, this guy's talking about this, and this guy's talking about that, and these guys are talking about the other thing. Um, and so you do uh, really, truly multiplex different uh, audio loops at one time. As the automation increased, I would imagine that there's less vocal, you know, call-outs because everything is on a big screen in front of you. You can see if, it, you know, the green dot is okay and the red dot means it's not okay. And then you can ask the people who have red dots next to them, what's wrong with this or that? Is, is well, that we, didn't, we, didn't really, we didn't really change the culture that much to that extent. Um, you know, if somebody's watching some really trivial thing in their back room, you know, they're watching some weird little signature that doesn't have any immediate effect, that may not even make it beyond the the back room to front room loop of a particular discipline. Um, it's when you when you get an alarm. Uh, obviously, we all see that up on the screen, and uh, the discipline better call the flight director and explain why he just got an alarm <laughs> as soon as they know what it means. And 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 an acceptable call is flight. We're looking at the flight ecom. We're looking at the message. We'll we'll get back to you. 
you know, uh, yeah, that that's acceptable. You know, I mean, if especially if he says, "Flight, give us a minute. Uh, well, I'll be back to you in a minute." If you tell me that you're looking at it, and you tell me how long it's going to take for you to t- give me more of the story, I'll give you that amount of the story as long as I've got the time to give you. Um, yeah. uh, I, so, I, so I, we the the automation didn't make didn't really reduce the voice the voice loop traffic that much in the front room loops because we're always wanting to know what's going on. Yeah, Chris is probably laughing right now because he's been AT, he he's worked ATC for years, and <laughs> I know he's had he's had voices in his head for yeah forever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yes, yes, many years, and before that, a heli- medical helicopter dispatcher. So it's a, a, a not exactly the same as going to space, but I, I think it's a little taste of maybe the same uh, atmosphere a little bit. <laughs> it know? is, it is. There's a there's a lot going on at one time, and you have to keep a mental picture of where everything is at what capabilities you have you know just like in air traffic control you have to keep that picture of where where all the airplanes are in your sector and where they're going and what your plan is for them you got to do all of that and and you can't stop Um, in our game you you need to know where the mission timeline's going what's happening next um, what's uh, what's on your what what's what failures have occurred and how they interrelate to each other and what the next worst next worst case failures could do to you. So you're always playing that chess game. I mean, it's a real chess game um, in terms of uh, of looking ahead. What could happen if this happens next? What do I do? And uh, in you know, we're watching this movie Apollo 13. We're seeing a disaster and what the what the contingencies are. And, and even in uh, this movie, tends to show that there weren't uh, contingency plans for things like. Uh, the the CO two scrubbers and, and stuff like that, but the idea of using the lifeboat, the LEM as a lifeboat, was a, a contingency plan that it wasn't talked about a lot, but it was there as as an ability. Right. Um, during the shuttle era, unfortunately, we have the Challenger era and the Columbia era and their respective return to flight. Um, there there became uh, mission rule uh, questions uh, post Columbia. Where if you weren't flying toward the uh, toward the uh, space station, then uh, you'd actually have to have a backup uh, mission. Like I, I think Hubble is the, probably one of the best examples of that you had a. It was a it was mission. the only it was the only example. Yeah, that was the only okay. it yeah. was the only post post Columbia mission that didn't go to the space station. And that was a that was a feat in itself of getting you know getting that extreme altitude to get to Hubble, right. as well as having an entire backup mission, uh, STS four hundred. Yep. Can we talk a little bit about uh, what the what the parameters for were for uh, STS four hundred? How did how did that evolve, and and what was what was the mission intended for in, in STS four right. hundred? So so STS four hundred was was a was a fully up paid for mission. Um, we trained for it, we planned for it, we developed the, all the techniques that needed to be done. And the idea was if, if the Hubble uh, servicing orbiter um, had a problem, we would launch the uh, rescue mission, which had a small crew, minimal crew, and it would rendezvous with the, with the damaged orbiter, and then we would grapple it with the RMS. Um, you, couldn't dock, you couldn't dock the two vehicles together because... Um, structure was in the way it just the 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 the, uh, docking uh, structure was was recessed below the payload bay line and so it wasn't you you couldn't really mate the two things Um, I I tell people it's kind of like noses getting in the way when you try and kiss uh, kiss someone Um, and so we would grapple the orbiter with the uh, robot arm and then we would 
rescue the crew via um, spacesuits shinnying along the RMS or along the robot arm. And because the the shuttle crew or the the uh, Hubble repair crew had four spacewalkers and an arm operator and a pilot and commander. Um, the spacewalkers obviously had suits that were sized for them, but the, the RMS operator did not, and the pilot and commander did not. So we would carry up suits that were variable enough in size to fit everybody, and then suits would have to go across with a person in it and then go back empty to get another person and back and forth. And I forget how many EVAs. Now I'd have to go back and look it up how many EVAs it was going to take to get everybody across. Um, our biggest challenge was uh, Scott Altman, the commander of the Hubble Resurface Servicing Mission. Um, uh, Scott is nicknamed uh, Scooter, which sounds like a really cute little guy, but Scott is <laughs> one of the biggest guys in the astronaut <laughs> office, uh, which is why he had the nickname Scooter. And, um, and uh, just trying to squeeze him into a suit was quite a challenge. Um, and he had to prove that he could do it uh, or we were stuck. Um, this before launch and so um he did it in a pool session in the uh, in the wet f the weightless environment training facility and uh it took him it took him about three tries to get into the suit and once he did then he put him in the water and and he was all he had to do was uh, was breathe as uh, somebody else carried him along basically um so that was kind of a fun uh, a fun uh, exercise so so the sts 400 um most of the STS-400 crew ended up becoming the STS-135 crew, the last shuttle flight crew, um, and uh, I thought that was kind of kind of fun because they ended up getting a flight that because uh, they trained for a flight and then it was not launched. So the philosophy for 400 was that STS-400 was going to launch. It was set to launch on something like day four of the Hubble mission, um, and and you were going to launch it unless it was called off because they'd inspected the Hubble servicing orbiter and, and realized that we didn't need uh, a, that they didn't need a rescue. So it was a mission that was a go until we called it off, and then we, of course, called it off because we didn't need it. Wow. And you worked all the way through to, uh, through uh, STS-135, so that was, I mean, you, yep. you saw the beginning all the way, the yep. entire lifetime of, of the shuttle. Right. Um, it, was it difficult the first day you didn't have to go back to work? Oh, I had to go back to work the next day because I was flying the space station. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, no, no, no. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I but, phrased but, that wrong. Yes, I phrased but it, wrong. but it, yes, um, it was, it, it was, uh, it was always, it was. It's sad to see the orbiters go. They had a lot of life left in them. They had a lot of capability left in them. The whole idea behind a space shuttle was to build a space station and then service the space station, carry up stuff, carry back stuff, and so. Um, to essentially put the shuttles out to pasture as soon as the space station assembly was complete, the mission was only half accomplished. Uh, and, and so that was very sad to see it go. On the other hand, personally, from a purely personal standpoint, I was pretty much at the age where I was, I was older. Than, I'd, I'd flown more missions than in every, all but one flight director. And he had so many missions because he was doing ascent entry uh, mostly. It was at Wayne Hale. Um, but as an orbit flight director, I was unsurpassed in time and uh, and uh, the years in service. Um, I'll frankly admit that I'd gotten old enough that I, I just don't think I could have kept flying shuttle. It would have it was it's a younger person's game. 
So, so on a personal standpoint, it was it was it was kind of nice that they grounded the vehicle before I had to make the decision to not fly it anymore. <laughs> no, I see. Yeah. But that's purely personal. <laughs> oh. When you watch uh, Ed Harris playing Gene Kranz here, do you identify strongly with him? Do you feel like I, I wasn't that I wasn't that good at it, or I was I, I did it like that? Or how, how does it how does it feel when you're watching a portrayal? I mean, you know you know Gene yeah. Kranz, but I mean, I, yeah, I it, mean he Ed Harris did a did a fabulous Gene Kranz, and Gene Kranz. It, I mean, we all we all did Gene Kranz. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know that I ever said failure is not an option because it was pretty trite phrase by that time. But I probably I, I would guess that at some point in time, I probably said, um, you know, let's not make the problem worse by guessing um, because or, or or I used a pair. I paraphrased it probably. But um, when you're training young flight controllers, and you have to remember that, that I was training flight controllers as flight director right up until the end of the shuttle program because we kept continue to train tra- train new people because then they were going to go over to the station. And, uh, and uh, we wanted to make darn sure that they were rooted in the – in the in the foundations of mission control and the and the flight control technique. So, yeah, I mean Ed Harris did a great did a flight great great flight director. Wow. Well, uh, you know, Paul, you definitely are, uh, exemplify uh, tough and competent for uh, for a flight director. <laughs> and it's I, I I I agree that this this movie it finally usually when they when they're space movies they usually show the astronaut side of things, but there's a whole group of people that make this possible in mission control and being able to see how much mission control made this possible there there really is it's a big team effort and you know i will never take anything away from the guys in the spacecraft the guys and the girls in the space or women in the spacecraft because it 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 is a it is a a pretty uh uh gutsy thing to let yourself be blown into space by by the equivalent of have a nuclear weapon or something like that um but it is a huge team, and the people that you see in Mission Control are only a small portion. One of the nice things about the movie Apollo 13 is that it showed the back rooms. It showed all those people that are supporting the dozen people you see in the front room, um, and 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 that was really special about it. And then it also doesn't show well the movie that movie shows the engineering support that those back room people could call on the the contractors, the people who develop the hardware to to go through all of the information to say exactly how many. What, where's your margins and how many amps can I operate this on? Uh, I know what I know what the book says, but what can I really get out of it? And and that's the that's the flight operations team in a total. And that's what I tried to do in my new book, um, you know, Shuttle Houston, which is to describe the shuttle operations from the ground side and from the the people who tra- uh, plan missions and train for missions and flew the missions in that respect. There there are a lot of wonderful wonderful. Uh, shuttle astronaut books out now that 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 I think everybody should read. Uh, this was this is kind of the first one that gives you the our side of the picture. Uh, well, uh, where can people find out more about where what you're doing nowadays, Paul? I know you well, have you have, I, you have, I do you have, have an web... enormous online presence. I... Yeah. Um, first off, I'm now I'm mostly in the experimental aircraft world, and I do a lot of a uh, lot of work. Uh, uh, I I was the editor in chief of Kit Planes magazine for six and a half years until I finally decided to promote myself to editor-at-large and someone else has to do the monthly production of the magazine. So I still get around and do a lot of flying. So you can find me at, on Kit Planes. But uh, I have a website. Uh, it's uh, ironflight.com, which is my call sign, ironflight. And uh, and uh, you'll you'll find a lot of little bits there and pieces of things that I think about and and uh, some a lot of what I've written and, and some videos uh, that uh, and uh that I that we did for flight controllers and 
Uh, there's a lot of information there, and then and then uh, you can find the book uh, Shuttle Houston at, at your favorite bookseller. Um, you know, I, I hesitate to to advertise any one of them because you know it depends where you like to get books, but you can you can find it. It's it's published by Hachette, which is a, a major publishing company, so it's mostly out there uh, uh, in any, anywhere you find uh, find bookstores everywhere. <laughs> oh, Paul, I wanna, end I of commercial. Th- thank you for the commercial, guys. I, I want to bring something up that I know you're. I, I know you well enough to know you're probably too humble to, to, to mention. Uh, and it's a story that happened to me. I was hosting uh, Gene Kranz here for something. And I mentioned that uh, that we had just had you to the museum, like maybe the month prior. And without even flinching, without hesitating, Gene looked at me and said, that was the best damn flight controller we ever had. And, <laughs> I mean, I, that, that, that's that got to be a high compliment. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very high compliment from Gene, um, and I and I appreciate that. You know, Gene and I maybe communicate like once a year nowadays, just something back and forth. Um, and uh, and and I have uh, I have the utmost utmost respect for Gene, and I really hope I'm glad he's still around. It was a real shame we lost uh, Chris Kraft last year, um, right around this time, and uh, and that was uh, that was a big loss to our little our little secret society of flight directors. But uh, but yeah, I uh, I find. Um, that uh, that we get together once in a while. Uh, we'll 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 find a room somewhere. We'll get flight directors, ex-flight directors, and current flight directors. You have to have a flight director call sign to be in the room. There are no wives. There's no spouses. There's no kids. There's no waiters or waitresses. You have to have an astronaut or a flight director call sign to be there. And we just let our hair down and have a good time talking about about the old days and the new days and putting the fear of the Lord into the new kids. <laughs> wow, that's stunning. Well, well again. Paul, thanks so much for being on our show. Uh, for folks who would like to talk more about uh, uh, mission control and, and flight control, we always have our, our social media out there. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at Apollo 13 Minute Mission Control or on Twitter at uh, Apollo 13 Minute. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to us, and I don't know why you haven't because we've been on for 126 episodes, so please uh, check out your lo- whatever your favorite uh, podcast catcher is, app- Apple, iTunes, or uh, uh, Google Play, and click subscribe, and you'll get us delivered as we're getting down to these final episodes. We'll get it delivered hot and fresh every Monday morning, Monday through Friday mornings, uh, and hear the latest episodes. Uh, we will return tomorrow. It looks like we're coming up on Lost of Signal in about 30 seconds, so we'll see you here tomorrow on the Apollo 13 Minute.